It's two after the hour. Do you want to give people another couple of minutes? Do you want to you want to go ahead and rock and roll? Because I know the okay, program, let's let's go. Because the program's like thirty one minutes long. Brad said so. Ooh. So this is this is uh <clears throat> this is a journey through history, and it's the sixth of uh, June, and our book tonight is uh, about Haiti, the island of Haiti. It's a prequel to which was written after the sequel. <laughs> But anyway, it covers the period between uh, 1791 and 1811 when they had their first riots and revolution. So I think we'll go ahead and hear what happened and what happened to the some very brilliant leaders they had, unfortunately, uh, taken away by Napoleon. All right, and y'all, y'all bear with me because this is my first time to do this. Brad trained me yesterday, but if if I muck something up, just don't send me a bunch of hate emails and stuff and just realize uh, I'll try to get it rectified and we'll get it done. So, uh, all right, let's see. Let's see. We have we go. great faith. Okay, here we go. No, that's not right. All right, here we go. Let's see. So we get to do shift on scare, screen, scare, share, and then all right, let's see. See colon backslash users backslash wall and backslash dropbox backslash history book club items. Haiti program for Haiti program for you somehow. Old Ace media player zero zero point oh oh. All right, speech on demand. I'm going to leave y'all all unmuted since there's only five of us here. Yeah. Avengers of the New World. The story of the Haitian Revolution. By Laurent Dubois. 1492, you know, when Mr. Genocide himself, Christopher Columbus, land what is now Haiti. In 1664, the French West India Company, which was created like five minutes ago, claimed the western half of the island, and Spain and France would eventually sign a treaty in 1697, officially making the western half under French control and naming it Saint Dominique. Soon after, from encouragements of the French crown, planters started to grow tobacco, indigo, cotton, and cocoa. This began the large shipment of slaves to the island to work these plantations, but the population would really begin to grow when the crop that made this colony would become popular, sugar. By this time, Saint Dominique would become the most profitable French colony by far and one of the most bearing of any European colony at this time. This tiny island would account for almost the same amount of profit as the entire bulk of supplies shipped from the 13 colonies to Great Britain. Saint Dominique would account for 60% of the world's coffee and 40% of its sugar. Several million people of the 25 million that lived in the Kingdom of France in 1789 were completely dependent upon this island to maintain their livelihood directly and indirectly. And the significance the revolution would have in time to come. Yearly, tens of thousands of slaves would be imported into Haiti, and the whole slaves get treated better than workers because their property principle then apply, as at least 50% of slaves would die within a year of arriving to the island due to yellow fever alone. This encouraged slave owners to work their slaves to death while providing the absolute most minuscule amounts of food and arrangements as possible. The death rate far outnumbered the birth rate, so the trade of slaves from Africa had to compensate for that, meaning most slaves were African-born. Due to this, and also the fact that due to the way that slaves were transported, a lot of the time they were grouped together by their region of origin, meant that slaves were able to maintain a lot of their language, religion, and culture. Now to give you an idea of the atmosphere, essentially nobody on this island got along. They all pretty much hate each other. Keep something in mind that was very important, and that's that blacks outnumbered the colonists 10 to 1. And this was something the colonists were very well aware of, and it put them in a perpetual state of intense paranoia for obvious reasons. There were many who saw an impeding revolution by the slaves in the future, one of the many signs of which was when the revolutionary French government passed legislation granting citizenship for the wealthy among free people of color in 1791, which the colonial masters did not comply with nor recognize. In this year, yes, finally, we get to where the actual revolution starts. I know, this is kind of what it's been climaxing to the entire time, but here we go. On a late August night, many slaves who had accumulated influence in their respective plantations had 
organize together a voodoo ritual with their fellow slaves. Keep in mind that any practicing of voodoo was suppressed in Haiti, so this was an act of pure rebellion. The ritual was led by an escaped Jamaican Maroon leader and voodoo priest, Duty Bookman. Now, a Maroon is an escaped slave who would become basically a pirate. Now, this all sounds pretty cool, but right now, this is like a 2 on the savage scale, alright? This is going to go up to like at least an 11 later on. Our God asks only good works of us, but this God who is so good orders revenge. He will direct our hands. He will aid us. Throw away the image of the God of the whites who thirsts for our tears and listen to the voice of liberty which speaks in the hearts of all of us. Dewey Bukman and his several hundred slave leaders have been meticulously strategizing and recruiting for months creating a vast network of slaves prior to executing their planned revolt. The following night, in the north, Duty Bukman would start by burning plantations and violently dragging whites out of their homes to be gruesomely murdered. The slaves were ready to get revenge for their lifetimes of torture and misery by raping and mutilating the colonial whites. Duty Bukman and his men went plantation to plantation in the north, recruiting any slave who they freed. The following month would see a desperate retaliation by white colonialists, but this did not stop the slaves from controlling a third of Haiti at this point. By this time, the French Revolution had already occurred, and the new Republican government granted full rights and citizens. Bookman was killed in battle in November, and his head was displayed in public. Leadership of the insurgent slaves gradually passed to a former slave, now a free black, named Toussaint Breda. To free slaves. Toussaint Louverture was a very determined man. He was a very ambitious man. And in my opinion, he was a genius. Toussaint is, I think, uh, one of the most incredible figures that I know about in, in, in many ways. He's born on a plantation in Saint-Domingue. He grows up on that plantation. That plantation was owned by a man who was tolerant for the times. Toussaint was taught to read and write as a child. He eventually occupies a, a somewhat privileged role, if you can say that on a plantation, as, as a coachman and, and has a kind of relationship with the managers and masters in some ways. He becomes free in the 1770s, so he's somebody who kind of occupied different roles in society. And I think that's the key for understanding Toussaint, is that he saw possibilities where other people didn't. He had businesses, had contacts in the U.S., and elsewhere, bank accounts, managed his affairs pretty well. The man was endless in organizational capacity. I mean, he would have been a fantastic CEO today. Toussaint didn't record his first reactions to the revolution in France, but his fellow free Saint-Domingans, the white colonials, and the mixed-race population were transfixed. In 1789, there were about 40,000 white people and about 30,000 colored people who were, of course, their sons and cousins and so on and so forth, who were landowners themselves, many of them, slave owners themselves, many of them very effective businessmen, many of them involved romantically with the white master class. One of the things that's important to remember about Haiti and race is it wasn't simply black and white. Instead, you had numerous gradations of color. One historian went so far as to give 110 categories of color from absolute black to absolute white. And to each combination, he gave a name, mulatto, quadroon, mamaluke, and what he was accounting for was the drops of black blood. Whites hoped for more control over the colony's governance, but the colony's mixed race population hoped for more fundamental changes. They had been born free, but not equal. They had to show physical respect for the white. 
stand up when they are in presence of a white, call them Mr. or whatever title they wanted to have. It was not easy for them, and that's exactly why they were the first one, before the blacks, they were the first one to ask for equality. The mixed-race population of Saint-Domingue decided their chance had come in 1791. They sent a petition to France's new government asking for the rights of citizenship. This was a powerful message to have been taking place in a society that was explicitly organized on inequality. It's like dynamite. The petition asked for civil protections and it enraged the island's white population. Working class colonists began a full-scale intimidation campaign. They threatened, beat, and murdered mixed-race residents in the capital. But the petition met a different reception back in Paris. The new breed of delegates in the National Assembly issued a landmark decree. They extended equal rights to the small population of mixed-race people born of two free parents. A week later, the attacks began. Cane fields were burned to ashes, plantation buildings looted, machinery destroyed, and many owners slain. Within a month, over 200 sugar plantations were burned and some 1,200 coffee plantations destroyed. Many slave owners feared that Le Cup would be torched. There ensued a bewildering succession of alliances, skirmishes, and shifts in allegiance on all fronts. For a time, free people of color and free blacks joined whites to fend off the rebels. Buchmann was killed in battle in November, and his head was displayed in public. Leadership of the insurgent slaves gradually passed to a former slave, now a free black, named Toussaint Breda, a coachman on the Breda plantation in the north. Toussaint skillfully organized a network of agents and couriers displaying a genius for political maneuvering and military strategy. His resourcefulness would be severely tested once the fallout from radical developments in France hit Saint-Domingue. France's declaration of war against Austria in the spring of 1792 sparked a series of unprecedented crises. An attack on the royal palace in Paris in August, a republic declared in the following month, the king tried, found guilty, and guillotined. As civil war erupted in France, the radical leadership declared war on other states, including England, Spain, and the Netherlands. Full political rights for free people of color in the colonies was proclaimed. This resulted in chaos in Saint-Domingue, further complicated by invasions by both Spanish and English forces. The white colonists looked to England for protection. Most of the rebel slaves under Toussaint were fighting for Spain, which offered them protection. Meanwhile, two Republican civil commissioners, Sontenax and Polverel, had arrived in September 1792, along with 6,000 troops to restore order. In the melee, over 10,000 slaves in Le Cap rebelled, atrocities were committed by combatants on all sides, and two-thirds of Le Cap went up in flames at the end of June 1793. The vaunted Paris of the Indies was now a wasteland of charred ruins. Sontenox offered freedom for slaves willing to fight against Spain or anyone else under the French Republican flag. In August 1793, Toussaint raised the stakes with a proclamation demanding immediate unconditional freedom and equality for all. At this point, Toussaint took the name L'Ouverture, the opening, with its connotation of a new beginning. On August 29, 1793, Sontenox announced the abolition of slavery in the North. The other Republican commissioner, Paul Burrell, 
soon thereafter proclaimed abolition in the South and the West. In February 1794, the legislature in Paris issued an Emancipation Proclamation, ending slavery in French colonies. In May 1794, Toussaint and his troops left Spanish service, began to fight for the French Republic, and successfully drove the Spanish from the territory. It is hardly surprising that the news of abolition in Saint-Domingue, thanks to the daring and fighting ability of former slaves, spread widely across the Caribbean and beyond, and doubtless planted some ideas and some hope in many slave communities. Spanish authorities in Louisiana, notably the Governor General, Baron de Carondelet, took every precaution to ward off the arrival in New Orleans of Jacobins or slaves who had lived in Saint-Domingue and might bear the contagion of revolt to this area. To return to Saint-Domingue, in May 1797, Sontenac named Toussaint as commander-in-chief of the French Republican Army in the colony. When Sontenac was chosen to be one of the representatives of the colony in Paris, Toussaint became the most powerful figure in Saint-Domingue, especially after securing the withdrawal of all British troops from the territory in 1798. Seeking to rebuild the damaged economy and to restore the export crops to their earlier dominance, he appointed whites to positions of influence in his government. Toussaint had cordial political and economic ties with the United States during the administration of President Adams, yet he also gave every indication of enjoying his autocratic position to the hilt. By 1801, he had conquered Santo Domingo and declared the abolition of slavery in that territory. Later that year, he wrote a new constitution for Saint-Domingue, assuming the governorship for life with the right to appoint his successor. That was not the way that colonial leaders are expected to act. Indeed, it bore all the earmarks of readiness for independence from France. Napoleon Bonaparte, the head of the French government, determined to restore white authority in Saint-Domingue. General Leclerc, with 17,000 troops, arrived in February 1802 with reinforcements to come. Initial skirmishes against Toussaint and other black generals produced a standoff and concluded with the willingness of black leaders to cooperate with France upon assurance of keeping their military ranks. Napoleon's real intention became clear when Toussaint was lured into discussions with Leclerc, captured and sent off to a French prison in the Jura Mountains near the Swiss border. Even before he entered the prison, the scene in Saint-Domingue had totally changed upon news that the governor in Guadeloupe had announced the restoration of slavery. Black generals like Dessalines and Christophe deserted the French and war to the death ensued. In November 1802, Leclerc died of yellow fever. By then, out of 34,000 French soldiers, 24,000 were dead, 8,000 in hospitals, and only 2,000 wasted men remained. The initial idea had been for Leclerc to establish order in Saint-Domingue, including the arrest of the black leadership there. Then he could proceed to the French colony of Louisiana, where a strong military position might be installed. The drain of men and resources in Saint-Domingue had scuttled those plans. Meanwhile, war between France and England had resumed, and Napoleon knew that the English had shark eyes trained on New Orleans. The dominance of English sea power, the loss of a naval base at Le Cap, the absence of a strong army to defend Louisiana, all persuaded him to sell the territory to the United States rather than have it seized by England. President Jefferson was wary of a strong French military presence in the Caribbean or in Louisiana, but he also loathed the prospect of an independent black republic. After Haiti won its independence, 
Jefferson arranged for an embargo against the new state. His contemporary and rival, Alexander Hamilton, fully appreciated the close link between the revolution in Saint-Domingue and the purchase of Louisiana. To the deadly climate of Saint-Domingo and to the courage and obstinate resistance made by its black inhabitants, are we indebted for the obstacles which delayed the continued French colonization of Louisiana till the auspicious moment when a rupture between England and France gave a new turn to the projects of the latter and destroyed at once all her schemes as to this favorite object of her ambition. Let's add the verdict of Henry Adams, the grandson of John Adams, at the end of the 19th century. The story of Toussaint Louverture has been told almost as often as that of Napoleon, but not in connection with the history of the United States, although he exercised on their history an influence as decisive as that of any European ruler. The last year of French presence in Saint-Domingue was a revolving nightmare, especially owing to Leclerc's successor, Rochambeau, who was a sadistic maniac. Atrocities multiplied, the black leaders retaliated. The French were forced to leave Le Cap in defeat. Dessalines and his troops occupied the city on November 30th, 1803, and renamed it Cap Haitien. Earlier that year, Toussaint died in a far-off mountain prison in France. At the beginning of 1804, Dessalines became the ruler of the new sovereign state of Haiti. The ongoing war in Europe eventually led to the French invasion of Spain in 1808, multiple atrocities, guerrilla warfare by Spanish partisans, and heavy French losses. In an attempt to describe the horrors of the Spanish theater of war, contemporaries refer to it as Haiti in Europe. Once French troops poured into Spain, leaders in Spanish colonies expect and expelled anyone connected to France. This directly affected thousands of French colonists and free people of color from Haiti who had settled in Cuba with their slaves. Forced to depart Cuba, most of them migrated to New Orleans, practically doubling the city's population. The mayor of New Orleans in 1810 supplied the following statistics on the newly arrived. Whites, 2,731. Free people of color, 3,102. Slaves, 3,226. Many of the free people of color settled here in the Treme section of New Orleans, where the city's African-American Museum of Art, Culture, and History is located. An early historian of Louisiana, Barbé Marbois, wrote in 1830 that Louisiana has been enriched by the disasters of St. Domingo, and the industry that formerly gave so much value to that island now fertilizes the valley of the Mississippi. The immigrants filled professions such as baker, silversmith, cabinet maker, hairdresser, fencing master, musician, barber, or actor, physicians, lawyers, engineers, builders, surveyors, and publisher printers. The refugees and the children of refugees included the composer and pianist Louis Moreau Gottschalk, the chess wizard Paul Morphy, and the jurist Moreau Lislay. The refugees from Saint-Domingue by way of Cuba played a most important role on the American side in the Battle of New Orleans. What they all had in common was a detestation of the English. Expertise regarding sugar cultivation by some of these former French colonists and the experience of their slaves in the cane fields was put to use developing sugar production in Louisiana. Like Cuba and Brazil, Louisiana would profit from the virtual disappearance of sugar exports from Haiti. Of course, the export of revolutionary contagion from Haiti never left people's minds. In January 1811, 
an uprising of slaves began along the river road near the present-day site of Norco. The leader was Charles Delonde, a slave born in Saint-Domingue. The slaves possessed several pistols, but most were armed with hoes, cane knives, and sticks. They marched south on the river road, burning and pillaging plantations, all the while shouting, on to New Orleans. A battle against 80 militia caused the slaves to withdraw to swampland, but they were cut down by local militia and a detachment of U.S. troops in the district. 66 slaves were killed in the battle or executed on the spot. Others were captured and held for trial. The trial was held at the Destrahan Plantation House. 21 of the accused were sentenced to death and shot. The corpses were decapitated and, in accordance with the court order, the heads were placed on poles along the German coast as a terrible example to all who would disturb the public tranquility in the future. It proved to be the largest slave insurrection in U.S. history and received broad press coverage across the country. White refugees from Saint-Domingue were typically among the hardcore of pro-slavery advocates in Louisiana. The Delonde revolt served to confirm many of their fears and predictions. In the years preceding the Civil War, the late 1850s, many free blacks in Louisiana believed that a move would be made to enslave all people of color in the state. Over 10,000 free blacks, many from New Orleans, migrated to Mexico and settled there. Thousands more went to Haiti. All the while, Haiti had remained a kind of pariah state in the eyes of much of the international community. The papacy did not recognize Haitian sovereignty until 1860, which ruled out the possibility of any Catholic teaching orders going to Haiti earlier than 1860 in any capacity. The United States refused recognition, notably because of objections by Southern congressmen in Washington, who were aghast at the thought of honors being given to black ambassadors or black consuls. Haiti was finally recognized in 1862 by Abraham Lincoln's government. In closing, I'd like to cite a passage from the journal of Louis Moreau Gottschalk, the piano virtuoso and composer born in New Orleans, whose grandparents had lived in Saint-Domingue and whose father had invested in the slave trade in New Orleans. Though he had never been in Haiti, on a return trip from Cuba in June 1857, his ship passed the coast of Haiti as night began to fall. And, quoting, All the passengers went below. I remained alone, leaning against the rigging, I contemplated the desolate country that opened out before me, high mountains whose angular peaks seemed as if they wished to pierce the clouds, solitary palm trees hanging sadly over the desert shore, a horizon whose lines were lost on a stormy sky. Everything, and more especially the name of Saint-Domingue, seemed to speak to my imagination by recalling to me the bloody episodes of the insurrection. Can anyone be astonished that I could not help feeling an indescribable sentiment of melancholy while for the first time beholding this fatal land with which so many grievous recollections are associated? Our dwellings burned, our properties devastated, our fortunes annihilated. Such were the first effects of that war between two races that had in common only that implacable hatred which each nourished for the other. Can anyone, however, be astonished at the retaliation exercised by the Negroes on their old masters? What cause, moreover, more legitimate than that of this people rising in their agony in one grand effort to reconquer their unacknowledged rights and their rank in humanity. In contemplating the events of that memorable epoch, at the distance of time that today separates us from them, 
we see the work of regeneration purged from the stains imprinted on it by human passions. It disengages itself from the shadows that obscures it. The blood has disappeared. The stains are wiped out. And from the bosom of this world which crumbles away, rises somber and imposing the grand form of Toussaint Louverture, the enthusiastic liberator of a race that 19 centuries of Christianity had not yet been able to free from the yoke of its miseries. Every year, the United Nations sponsors the International Day for the Remembrance of the Slave Trade and its Abolition. The date chosen for this annual day of remembrance is August 23rd, the anniversary of the rising of slaves in Saint-Domingue in 1791. What, after all, could be more appropriate? In all of world history, Haiti was the first and still remains the only instance of a slave revolt leading to freedom and then to the creation of an independent sovereign state. The year 2003 marked the bicentennial of the Louisiana Purchase, of Toussaint's death, and of the winning of Haitian independence. The links among the three are indissoluble. Alan Lemley has stopped computer audio share Zoom meeting. Oh. Okay. Are we being heard again? I hear yep. you fine. Okay. Did that did that play okay? It played beautifully. I I, I may have been rattling a, a chord around at one point and I apologize before I realized I needed to turn my mute button on, on my on my headset. So if y'all heard some rattling, apologies, but uh I finally uh rectified that. So uh, so Don, we've got like five people here. Do you just want me to call on them or what? I think just call on the people. So, okay. What? Well, I, as usual, I thoroughly enjoyed your hard work on the recording. I, I learned a lot, like, as I always do. So a excellent job with that. So, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Jana, I think you may be first on my list. Okay, I'm always on somebody's list. Um, <laughs> I did read this book, and uh, and I I enjoyed the recording a whole lot. It was great. One of the things I thought that was kind of interesting was when the slaves were supposedly freed, that they were actually asked to go back and work on the plantations, and so in some ways. I guess life was a little easier for them, but in other ways, it, it really wasn't. They were working slaves. So um, there was a lot to this book, and some of the details made my mind boggle. After a while, I couldn't remember who was doing what, <laughs> but that was one of the things that stood out in my mind was was what happened when the slaves were supposedly freed. So. That's about all I have to say. Okay. Thank you. Excellent comments. Uh, Lynn? Uh, yes. Um, I struggled with this book because I, when we first found out we were going to read it, I was pretty excited about it because I'm, I, one of my things that I like to do is read about slavery. And I couldn't figure out why I was struggling with this book. Um, I got more from the last half hour of the recording. They were like cliff notes. If people remember what cliff notes were. Yeah. Uh, from then I did from the whole book. Um, there was just so many different 
factions in the book and this group was fighting this group and that group was fighting this group and then then you had the different Spanish coming in and then the British coming in and the French coming in and later on the United States coming in and I was just pretty much stayed confused through the whole book and it didn't seem to be very logically laid out for me you know I'm trying to usually I guess I'm simplifying it too much and trying to this the good guys against the bad guys and it was like everybody against everybody else and it right. kind of reminded me in though of the mess that we got into in Iraq and then and there were so many uh, partisans there and different factions fighting against each other and all fighting against the United States that it was just you know it's the, the book was a mess to me, <laughs> but I'm glad I, I attempted to read it. I, I had no very little background in, in Haiti other than uh, they, they had a slave rebellion and they and they were able to free themselves. OK, well, thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, Betsy, do you want to you unmute know, yourself you and, uh, and make any comments? Okay. Yeah, I've read most of the book. I'm only missing like 20 pages to go. And um, I, re- I really enjoyed it. It was hard to keep up with, but I'd never read much on the slave rebellion. So it was all a lot of new stuff for me. And it was hard sometimes. I could not have done it auditorily, but it was hard sometimes to keep up with who was who. But it was interesting that when you thought that Bonaparte was going to be trying to get rid of slavery, and yet he said he wanted slavery. It was all that weird where it's got confusing. I knew what. Louboutin wanted, but it was confusing with Bonaparte because it seemed like he kept going back and forth. But I'm glad I read it, and it's part of history I'd not thought much about. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna gonna have to confess, I only got about four and a half hours into it, and 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 I think it's partly because I agree partly with what Lynn says. Uh, I, I I'm just horrible with if if I don't know the names of the parties involved. I don't know squat about, I mean, I took two years of French in high school, but that don't help me too much with all these names and stuff. I, I get totally lost. And, uh, it, and, it, and, and, and in agreement with Lynn, it, it wasn't laid out at, at least in the way Alan's brain works uh, or the way I do logic and stuff. So I, I got totally confused. I mean, I got through the part after the first revolt and stuff, but I, I didn't get much further than that. So I, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, Don's recording as well because it it, it it it's just like Lynn says it was a Cliff Notes overview of of the stuff. Uh, again, I'm I'm glad I got exposed to some of the terminology. I, I wish I'd been better and and gotten through the whole thing. And I want to say, I grew up in Mississippi, and if I ever hear one other person try to say that slaves were ever happy being owned by somebody else, I'm gonna slap them down because I. How anybody that's got any lick of sense could ever think that is beyond me. Uh, you, you know, it's it, it, it and, and you know they it, th- there was some of that in this book too, and I and, and I'm just wondering, you know, how could anybody ever believe that somebody is going to prefer being owned and directed and beaten and stuff? Uh, it, it's just it, it's just amazing. And, and and then the whites are all surprised when these people revolt and and, and you know start fighting back. I, I just. Uh, I, I I don't get it, but uh, anyway. It, yeah, it, I've, it, I've got a story for you. Yeah, well, I, I'll just um, go on to say it, it won't be the last stupid thing a politician ever does or, or whoever's in charge of, of doing yeah. stuff like that, but go ahead. Yeah, uh, I was sitting in a class in college, probably s- sophomore class I don't even remember what class it was and and it was a black t- black professor mm-hmm. and me not knowing much of anything at the time and they were started talking a little bit about something about slavery and I took the attitude of well if you own somebody, wouldn't you want to treat them nice so you could get the most stuff out of them? 
and give them good, you know, give them good health and right. and feed them well. And, and I mean, just not knowing what I'm talking about um, and pretty much showing my ignorance. And that professor just kind of, I don't know what kind of look he gave me, but when I got through listening to what he was saying, I wanted to crawl up underneath the desk. Uh, well, I, it, 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 it's, and, and you put the argument forward, you know, I mean, I, that, that seems logical to me, but, uh, uh, but, but, but nobody, I mean, people don't want to be owned and stuff. And because, uh, you know, I, I really think when you're treating people like property, you're not going to be treating them like the, like they need to be treated. Uh, it's just, it, it just, it, it just, it, it contradicts the, 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 the whole, the, the whole concept. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, that, 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 that's that's enough for me. Uh, Don, do you want to make any uh, yeah, any, any last comment? One, yeah. one factor that we didn't this book didn't bring out too much. Uh, by the way, the author said that things were really muddled. The the shifting back and forth of the uh-huh. different groups and changing, and so <laughs> it, it was hard to follow. But the uh, that the sugar cane. It's a, an industrial crop. It, it's very dangerous and a very high, intensive labor thing. And even when they were free, the people worked under atrocious conditions and a lot of injuries. And the the uh, mills that ground the shop, people get their arms stuck oh, yeah. in it and things like that. And it was a work 24 hour shifts. And so, so things were never very good, even on nice area which it wasn't okay good 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 point <laughs> yeah yeah i i i read far enough to to, to hear about uh, the, the, those injuries and stuff with it with the arms you know going into those machines and coming off basically yeah but uh that was horrible uh, uh, yeah it's just horrible to, uh but anyway uh well i can are there any other comments? I can play the promo whenever you're ready, Don, and just let me know. You there? Yes. Do you, want me to go, do you want me to go ahead and play the promo? Or do you want to make any oh, other comments? Yes, I, I think we play the promo. Uh, okay. It's, All right. I, I will say that it's, it's, this is a good thing that we're going to be have to. Uh, August first to finish reading. Audio now unmuted alert. It's a, but it's a, it's a lot of interesting it, recent history. You'll you'll recognize the names here. Okay, give give me a second. I'm gonna work through all this again. Let's see. Let's see. All right. Alan Levely has started computer audio share. You are sharing computer sounds. One hell of a gamble. Khrushchev, Castro, and Kennedy, 1958 to 1964, by Alexandra Fursenko and Timothy Naftali, 46210. Copyright 1997, by Alexandra Fursenko and Timothy Naftali. Read by Peter Gill. Library of Congress Annotation. Chronicles the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, when the world's two superpowers came to the brink of nuclear war. Using Russian archives opened in the 1990s, this account traces and analyzes events surrounding a confrontation that was, in the author's view, the most serious of the Cold War. 1997. From the book jacket. No baby boomer can hear the name Castro without John F. Kennedy, Nikita Khrushchev, and the image of nuclear missiles coming to mind. For over 30 years, historians, pundits, and just plain folk have debated the Castro phenomenon. Was the United States responsible for a communist Cuba? Why did the CIA try to kill him? Did he get his revenge in Dallas on November 22, 1963? John F. Kennedy did not keep a diary. And of course, he did not live to write his memoirs. If he had, 
we might not have had to wait until the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the opening of Soviet archives to learn the secrets of his private diplomacy with the Kremlin at the climax of the Cold War. Khrushchev did live to tell his story for posterity, but in recounting events years later, left out the most colorful and illustrative moments of his time at the top of the Soviet regime. Now, with unprecedented access to Russian archives, the historians Alexander Fursenko and Timothy Naftali give us the fullest account of the most dangerous moment of the Cold War. Like finding the other half of a torn photograph, exploiting the archives gives us a whole new perspective on familiar events. Was Castro a communist? asked Richard Nixon in 1959. Documents open for the authors pinpoint the first contacts between the Kremlin and the Cuban revolutionaries and lay bare the close relationship between Fidel Castro's own brother Raul, the legendary Che Guevara, and Moscow. Soviet-era records also preserve a series of extraordinary attempts by John Kennedy to bring about a superpower detente in the two years before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hints of these efforts, all of which involved Robert Kennedy, have appeared in some histories of the Kennedy years, but this book chronicles the details, the frequency, and the meaning of these efforts. Finally, and most important, there is the missile crisis itself. This book turns upside down the standard story of the most perilous military standoff in the last half century. The Soviet decision to put missiles in Cuba came after an agonizing reappraisal of Moscow's relations with Castro, and readers will be struck by the fact that Khrushchev fully intended to use nuclear weapons against any U.S. invasion force. With the missiles in place and detected by American U-2 aircraft, we get a dramatic, hour-by-hour -hour account of moves and counter-moves, building to October 22, 1962, the most dangerous day of this century. About the authors. Alexandra Fursenko, a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences, is one of Russia's leading historians. A Harvard PhD, Timothy Naftali teaches history at Yale University, where he is a fellow at International Security Studies. 46210. 46210 I got the number. That's what I want. The number. So. You, <laughs> you remember how long it is, Don? It's uh, twenty hours. Okay. But we're not we're we're not meeting in July. I remember. So it, yeah, uh, I I don't really care that much about how the link. Uh, I'm willing to read long books. I'm All just right. curious. Okay. Well, uh, both of us lived through this, so I think. I think this is a great choice myself. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward yeah. to being more familiar with, with these details and stuff. So, yeah, me too. But uh, okay, well, let's see what's yeah. what's Alan. That? You get an A for the day. Did did, did, did everything sound okay? So it sounded I, I, good. Well, it was we, wonderful. We have to thank Brad. He he told me how to do it and. uh, uh, he, uh, I, I guess Don did the recordings and Brad and Brad's and I are sharing the Dropbox folder now. So it's real easy. I mean, I can do this again. So, uh, I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep practicing. Dropbox, so, uh, let's yeah. yeah, you did good. Well, th thanks. Link. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. I wish I had some, some more comments for the actual book we were discussing, but Hey, uh, uh you know, I, yeah, I ran out of time, but, but uh, anyway, There's a lot to that book. It's, uh, uh yeah, it's, it, it really was. Yeah. But uh, uh, so I, I I'm curious nobody nobody took Ann Flosnick to task or anything. What did anybody think of the narration? Nobody, well, you know, we didn't say anything about that. Uh, that was cool. uh, 
but I thought the French introduction was her French. Well, I guess it was cool girl French, but it was uh, very good. And I, I was telling Don before before we started that I I tend to give more credence when I'm reading history. If the person doing the narration has a British accent, I don't know why they don't actually have to be female, but uh, I, I, I I don't know. I, I I I give them more more credence for some reason. Yeah, I've got nothing to base that on. But uh, uh, I thought but, she uh, did a good job the yeah, narration. I thought, yeah, I thought she did too. Uh, I, uh, oh no, it was all those uh, names. I had trouble telling the different. Uh, yeah. Emeralds apart because you know, it's yeah. just on whatever. It those, those, if it was, if it was done by a, one of those authors, it's not ours. They're so boring. I think I told my daughter that she said, "Well, that's how they're trained to read." Yeah. That our authors are, our readers are so much better. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. those professional right. readers don't give any. Just I don't know who y'all listen to it. They just don't give any intonation. They're just right. they ours did, such as Jack Fox and Jill Fox and all those guys. There's 18 chapters in the book. I can tell you that much. Okay. All right. Oh, no, it's 18, 17, but they must be long. This yeah. Uh, yeah. They're over an hour a piece. It sounds like if it's, if it's, 20, to have, if it's uh, 20 hours long. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's to have page numbers. It was a, you know, the first chapter on Castro's visit to the United States. His first visit when he first took power and the American Editors Association invited him. Everybody was cheering him and everything. So he's got mm. quite a okay. All right. It should be interesting. Yeah, it's, it, it should. should be. I well, can't count how many pages because this one doesn't have page numbers. They do that sometimes, so they copy it right from the print book out there. They don't give you page numbers, but it must be long chapters as long as they. So we next meet in in August. August. Yeah, because ACB uh, is at first. Is that, yeah, that's right. right. right, right. So August first is Tuesday. Oh, it is Tuesday, okay, August first. Thanks, okay. man. Okay. Very good. Okay. Well, I'm I, I'm ready to go. Do y'all do you want to leave? You want me to leave? Thanks the, for that uh, recording, Don. That was really good for the. Yeah, yeah so it, it was it was excellent. Oh, yep. how you yes. find those? Yeah. So. That certainly helped me understand the book there, Don. Thanks. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to shut this down. That's the one thing I'm not real clear on. It's real easy. Just real to say end meeting for all. If you do all that for it should ask you in meeting for all or if you're gonna just end okay. all right. And, and is that from the actual Zoom meeting window? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. Well here because we go. I don't know what you're using for speech. I use NVDA, so I do all Q and then it'll say this time please. Okay. I'm just going to do an all F four. So everybody take care, stay safe and enjoy right. your books and enjoy whatever else life throws your way. So uh, all right. thanks. Good night. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night.